Father God, we have the awesome privilege to come into your presence through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, through the power of the Spirit that you give us and give the church. Father, you give, you give us this awesome privilege to come before you, to dwell in your presence. Father, it's such a beautiful and glorious morning. Um, your creation points to you, it points to your glory. I pray that we remember that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we'll be in Genesis 1, and our passage will be on the screen up here in a minute, as, uh, as well as you may have a Bible, and are invited to turn there, Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. We'll begin reading that. 127. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves over the ground. This is our passage this morning. Earlier this summer, earlier in June, I had the privilege to go on a road trip with my family. Some of you may be planning the same. And no sooner than five minutes after we've left our driveway, Dad, are we there yet? We're not even out of Altoona. <laughs> Dad, are we there yet? Oh, we're just going by the Wisconsin Dells. We, we got a ways to go. Don't worry, I'll, I'll tell you when we're there, you're not going to miss it. We're going to upstate New York. This was not a short drive. And how long is it going to be? About 16 hours. Oh, 16 hours? That's forever. Dad, how long is it going to be? 15 hours, 50 minutes. Don't worry. We'll, We'll let you guys know hour by hour how much time we have left. Okay. Dad, I'm hungry. Do we have anything to eat? Throw a few snacks back there. Dad, I'm kind of thirsty. Do we have anything to drink? Do we have any more juice boxes? Dad, why are we going over there? Well, we're going to visit your aunt and uncle and your cousins, and we're road tripping with your grandma and grandpa. You know, this is, they're our family. This is who we are. They're part of our identity. This is who we are. This is what we do because we love them. We make time to see them. Are we there yet? Oh, I give up. You know, here's the iPad. Look at this shiny thing. All right. I'm done. Sorry. The questions of who we are and what we do. These aren't just silly questions that come up on a road trip. These are questions core to who we are as humans and who God created us to be. So our passage this morning in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we'll be looking at these questions, these issues of who we are and what are we here for.
Now, as a real brief recap, before we dive into our passages this morning, we've been in Genesis 1 and 2 for the past couple weeks. We've started a series on prayer called Prayer, Take a Breath. And two weeks ago, we started out by just examining what it means to first come into the presence of God, that we all have trials and and challenges that we face, and we have specific prayers that are right and appropriate to pray. But first, before we jump to those, what it would mean to just first dwell on coming into the presence of God, like in Genesis 1 and 2, where we had perfect communion and relationship with God in our prayer. Last week, we looked at uh, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. And examined how that can impact our prayer life by, number one, understanding that we pray to a God that is outside of time and that has all the time literally in the world for each of us. And that how God's infinite greatness with his creation, his beautiful creation, reflects his infinite greatness and how we can come with confidence in prayer Uh, to such a God. And so this week, we are still in Genesis 1. We're at the end of the chapter, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And again, we're focusing on those questions of who we are and what we're here for. Now, to completely understand, or to better understand Genesis 1, 27 and 28, and who we are, made in the image of God, we first want to back up and I want to set some context. Because I believe in order for us to understand what this passage means for us, first we can ask the questions, well, what did it mean to its original audience? Who wrote it? Who was it written to? And when? And these questions will help us understand this passage, the image of God, and how it applies to our life. So, in order to do that, I'll take you back to another road trip. Okay? This one, in the book of Exodus like my road trip, was supposed to take 11 days. Mine did, this one didn't. This one took about 40 years. So, if you have a Bible, you can keep, your, uh, keep a finger in Genesis 1, but then turn ahead to Exodus. Because the consensus of some solid Uh, Biblical authors and and, uh, commentators and scholars is that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy were were written by Moses or compiled by Moses. Okay, Throughout Exodus, there are uh, different periods where God will command Moses, write this down, write this down. Exodus 17, 24, chapters 34. Multiple times where God will say, write this down for the people. And Jesus himself, later in the Gospels, also testifies to the fact that um, these first five books, as we know them, the the Pentateuch, were written by Moses in Mark 12 and John 7. He'll say, the book of Moses, the law of Moses. And so we can stand with solid uh, testimony that, that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were written or compiled by Moses. And likely between when God's people, the Israelites, left Egypt, left slavery from Egypt, and before they came into the land of Canaan, before they got into the promised land. Okay? And so understanding why God would have Moses write to his people then will help us 
understand this passage today. So in Exodus, a real brief, brief summary. Again, at the end of Genesis, God's people are in Egypt. They had fled because of famine. They had ended up in in Egypt. God had uh, provided for them through Joseph, through Joseph being um, second in command of Pharaoh. And after Joseph died, uh, God's people had stayed in Egypt. And their families had gotten larger and generation after generation. uh, They'd actually grown to a sizable contingent. So a new Pharaoh comes up. He doesn't know or recognize the the history that they had had with Joseph. And pretty soon he begins to be threatened by the Israelites. And so he puts them under hard labor, puts them under slavery. And eventually he'll instruct the Egyptian midwives to kill any newborn baby boys. So Moses' mom is able to He's delivered in secret. She's able to hide him for a few months, but then eventually, as he gets bigger, um, she can no longer hide him. She puts him in a basket in the Nile, in the reeds, and he's found by one of the Pharaoh's daughters. And he's raised in Pharaoh's house. Okay? Now, the Pharaoh in Egypt at that time, they were considered the image of the sun god. Okay, the Egyptians worshipped many gods, but one in particular, one of their major deities, was the sun god Ra. And the pharaohs alone, as kings, were considered the image of God. And the rest of the people, the rest of the Egyptians, were just workers, and the Israelites were below them. They were just servants or slaves. They were nothing. They were property. So they were told. Well, eventually, Moses finds an Egyptian that's beating a Hebrew, and he he tries to help defend him. He, He strikes the Egyptian. He actually ends up killing the Egyptian. And Moses flees in exile, afraid for his life. And for the next 40 years, he's in the wilderness until God shows up to him, Exodus 3, in the burning bush. And he commands Moses to go back to Egypt because God was going to deliver his people and Moses was going to be a part of that. So we have the familiar stories of Moses and Aaron going back before the Pharaoh. God says, let my people go. The Pharaoh says, no, there is a series of plagues that come from Exodus uh, 3 through chapters 3 through 10. Pardon me, uh, 7 through 10, waters turned into blood, insects, frogs, the cattle die, hail, locusts, darkness over the land. And eventually God, in his last plague, he tells Moses, he says, tell the Israelites that they're to take an unblemished lamb, kill it, and take its blood put it over the doorposts of their house because God was going to come in judgment against the land of Egypt, but that when he saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over their house. So Moses does, and the Israelites 
do this in obedience to God? And, the, and all of the other firstborn sons and animals in Egypt die, including the Pharaoh's own firstborn son. He relents, he lets him go, and then he changes his mind and they chase after him. And the, again, the familiar story, the Israelites going through the Red Sea. And they start their road trip. And once you know it, some things, some things are the same. Exodus 16, 2 and 3. Again, Israelites on their road trip with Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said, If we had died by the Lord's hands in Egypt, uh, we still would have had meat to eat. For now you've brought us out here into the wilderness to kill us with hunger. Moses, I'm hungry. Are we there yet? Exodus 17. 17.3, but the people thirsted for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, why have you brought us out from Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock for thirst? Moses, I'm thirsty. Now, eventually, they get to Mount Sinai. This is where God delivers to Moses the Ten Commandments, where he delivers the law. Where Moses goes up on the mountain. The people are surrounding the mountain. Chapter 32, Exodus 32, 1, When the people saw that, Mo- that M- Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people assembled and said to Aaron, Come, let us make us a god to go before us. Moses, um, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become, become of him. So Aaron said, Tear off the gold rings which are on the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took them from his hand and fashioned it with a, with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Are we there yet? How long is he going to be up there? Aaron's just like, I, I give up. Look at this shiny thing. I used to judge Aaron, I think, a little bit. I don't anymore. I empathize with him. I get it. He made a mistake, but I get it. You see, God made man in God's image. That's the testimony of Genesis 1.27. And man, humankind, at our first opportunity, makes God in our own image. You see, this is a a problem of sin, not just in their day, but that's consistent through to our day. We think of idols as some uh, function of ancient worship, But in reality, each of our hearts has the ability and the propensity to make idols. 
Now, they're probably not a golden calf that's shiny, but it may be a little electronic device that tells us we're important when people email us, and we're constantly checking that 30 times a day because we idolize being significant or feeling significant. So our idols may be different than theirs, but our propensity in sin to idolize things is still the same. We exchange the real for the counterfeit. Prior to Moses, most people, the the Israelites, thought thought of themselves in Egypt as instruments or property of the gods. Usually people imagine themselves as victims, as people incapable of changing their environment. And God, through Moses, writing in Genesis 1, that you are made in the image of God, God says, he changes that whole pathetic mindset. And he says, not just the Pharaoh, not just the king, but everyone is made in God's image. Everyone is made in God's image. You see how revolutionary that is to the thinking of the original audience of Genesis 1? The people coming out of slavery, about to go into this promised land that God has promised them? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does that idea mean? There's been a lot written, and that's probably an understatement. There's been a lot written throughout the years by theologians and philosophers and Christian thinkers about what that means and trying to get their arms around that. I want to take a look at just two simple ideas of that. Two different quotes I thought were helpful in understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. The first one, by a theologian, uh, Tom Wright. And he says, God has put humans like an angled mirror in this world so that God can reflect his own love and care and stewardship of the world through humans. And so that the rest of the world can praise the Creator through us. So I think the first helpful idea of what it means to be made in the image of God is like a mirror. That we reflect God's glory. We are designed and intended to reflect God's glory. And and, uh, he says it's like this angled mirror where God's glory comes down. We are to reflect it out to the world. And that's one idea of what it means to be made in God's image. Second idea, I believe is helpful. Another pastor, uh, John Piper, he will say, images are created to image. Seems obvious. He says, images are created to image. You want people to look at it and think of what is imaged. So you want people to look at you and think of God. Why did God create man? To show God. So that they would walk and 
act and feel that God must be great by looking at somebody who follows Christ. God must be real by looking at your life. He didn't create you to be an end by yourself. If God's people are bored with God, they are really bad images. So again, one of this amongst the extensive thought that's been written about what it means to be the image of God, I think one of the, the simplest and, and the most accurate is just this idea of being a mirror, a reflection designed to reflect and glorify God to the world. Now, because of sin, we might think of that mirror as cracked or broken or dirty, that we no longer reflect God as we were intended to reflect God. And that's part of the consequences of sin. And a couple of weeks, we'll spend a little bit more time on that. And so you might think of this mirror designed to reflect God's image as a few cracks grown through it, and there's, there's dirt on it and mud. And, okay? And so we no longer perfectly reflect God's image. We are all image bearers, but imperfectly. And one of the other things to understand about being made in the image of God, and this is the second part of, of uh, our passage here, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, incre- increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful, increase, fill the earth. Have families. Grow crops. What do families do? There's more families. They congregate together in cities. There's the start of culture. There's, you know, God's command to reflect his glory and to expand his kingdom is also just the command day to day, our work and creative work to reflect God's glory. As the families grow, as more families grow, they congregate, a culture is formed. And so you even have other academics who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves Christian describe this phenomenon of how culture is really tied back into something like prayer. Passage I was reading in a book called Prayer, a History. Again, not an evangelical, not even a Christian perspective on prayer, but a more... um, secular perspective, still recognizes this phenomenon, and they, still somewhat mystified by it, but we, having the answer why, Philip and Carol Zaleski will say, the world's oldest urban cultures grew up around buildings that were essentially cultic, uh, were essentially cultic centers dedicated to prayer. Look at any major ancient ruin, and you will see the remains of a people at prayer and the signs of an economy that traded in prayer. All art was originally sacred art. In effect, visual prayer. All drama was originally sacred drama, telling about God in order to win God's assurance. Much of the productive work of the world has been instigated and hallowed by prayer. Again, it's a secular perspective, but they were still 
somewhat fascinated with the modern mind of, as they researched humanity, that, hey, why is it, why is it getting back to prayer? We see all these things are going back to prayer. In their conclusion, if prayer lies at the heart of culture, then it stands to reason that the dominant prayers of a society will reveal to us its preeminent values. And again, the Bible says at the heart of prayer, this beginning in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, when God first speaks to humankind, we can see our awesome responsibility to reflect him, but we can also see His command to expand his kingdom is also not just a command to -to day-to-day work and creative work, but it's, it's the beginning of human culture. Now again, we go back to this idea that we are imperfect image bearers, that each of us is a cracked mirror. It's we are dirty. We no longer reflect God as God had originally intended to be reflected. But We have one, Jesus Christ, who is and was the perfect reflection of God. Okay? So, if you turn in your Bibles to Colossians, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in the first century. And speaking of Christ, in Colossians 1.15, he said, He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. So we're stuck with this problem of being imperfect image bearers. What does the Bible say the solution to that is? Jesus. He alone is is the perfect Reflection, he alone is the perfect image of who God is. Later in Colossians chapter 3, Paul will tell the church, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now, put them aside. Put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you were laid aside, since you have laid aside the old self and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So the Bible says as... Jesus is the perfect, Jesus is God, and he's the perfect image of God. That's the solution for us as imperfect image bearers is to follow after Jesus. That as we do, as we begin this process of, of Christian discipleship, following Jesus, that we become more and more conformed to his image, that we better and better reflect who God is. And one final passage on uh, highlighting Jesus as the image, uh, the true image bearer. Romans 8, verse 29. 
Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome at this time, he said, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Conformed to the image of his Son. That's that whole idea of Christian discipleship. Following after Jesus. So the Bible says we are imperfect. We were designed to reflect God, to glorify God, to expand his kingdom. But we are imperfect image bearers. It says the solution to that is Jesus, the one true image bearer. Now I want to look uh, look at a few quick uh, application points for us in our prayer life. Again, how does Genesis 1, 27 and 28 impact how we actually pray on a day-to-day basis? Well, there's four different Four different points here I want to highlight. How it impacts our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the creation. With God, I would hope that we could add into our prayer lives the idea that we are made in his image, we are meant to reflect his glory and expand his kingdom. So as we pray... We take hold of this foundational theological truth and say, God, how can I reflect your glory today? How can I better reflect your glory today? How can I be a part of expanding your kingdom today? Kingdom-minded prayers first. And the testimony of Scripture is, follow Jesus. Number two, how can understanding being made in the image of God affect our relationship with ourselves in our prayer life. Well, sometimes some of the evil and nasty lies, um, the nastiest lies about us come from our own minds. And we, we can have a tendency to degrade and devalue our status. And the Bible says, you were made in the image of God, You are the pinnacle of his creation, designed to reflect glory to him. So humankind, above all else in God's creation, has the opportunity to reflect glory to him. What an awesome privilege! And so these lies that we can tell ourselves, they're lies. God has given you the testimony through his word. That through the gospel and through faith in Jesus, through his death and resurrection, that you can walk more and more day by day like his son, the true image of God. That you are valued. That you are important. You are are created by God to give glory to God. You have an awesome privilege. And so I I believe it has a great effect, can have a great effect on our own prayer life in our examination of ourselves. Number three, how can being made in the image of God affect our prayer life with relation to others? Well, the biblical truth of being made in the image of God tells us a number of things. Number one, everybody has value and worth. 
Nobody is property like the Israelites were in Egypt. Like, unfortunately, some people are still today in slavery, in um, human trafficking. That nobody is property. Everybody is designed by God with worth, with dignity, with awesome potential to reflect God and God's greatness. So that when we see instances of people being degraded and devalued, and we see injustice as followers of Christ, we speak up. That we fight against injustice. Because God has created everybody with worth and dignity. And when we see people treated like property today, it's at the core of what it means to be created in in the image of God that we speak up, and I'm proud to say that our church and others are a part of uh, helping support organizations like Fierce Freedom and protecting the unborn. These, these, what people think of our social issues, really at their heart are core issues of truth and theology and in the Bible. That everyone is made in the image of God. And that impacts how we react to injustice when we see it. And I would hope that we would pray for eyes to see injustice and pray for ways to be a part of ending that of expanding God's kingdom through um, bringing justice and mercy and hope to this world. And lastly, how it impacts our relationship with the creation and how that can affect our prayer lives. Number one, we are designed to reflect a creative God. So I believe when we are creative, that can reflect and magnify God's glory. Be creative. You're worshiping God. Number two, we were commissioned to rule over the world. And so we have a responsibility um, to care for God's creation. Not to worship it, but to care for it. And so... um, we don't waste things unnecessarily. We, we are stewards of what God has given us. And in that and doing that well is reflecting God's glory. So back to our passage, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So two short verses, but a lot to unpack there. A lot to unpack. And I pray that um, this will impact your prayer life. I know it's impacted my prayer life, both in my understanding of my relationship with God as somebody who is designed to reflect his glory and how that happens only truly through faith in Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross, his death for our sin, his resurrection. 
how that affects my prayer life in self-examination, how that affects my prayer life in relation to others and seeking justice and mercy, and how that affects my prayer life with um, praying to be creative as God has designed us to be and care for his creation as he has designed us um, to care for it. But two quick verses, a lot to unpack. I pray that these are things this week that will better inform and prod your prayer life. Please pray with me. Father God, again, you've given us the privilege to come together as a community of faith to worship you, to lift your name up, to seek your glory. Father, uh, just examining these two verses, just getting a glimpse of how you've designed us to reflect your glory like, like mirrors that reflect light. Father, we know we are imperfect in that, that our sin has uh, caused these mirrors to be cracked and muddied and dirtied. But Father, we know that the testimony of your word is that Jesus Christ is the one true, perfect reflection of who you are, and that through faith in him and walking day by day in discipleship in following him, that we can better reflect who you are. Father, whether it's our relationship with you, ultimately, but also our examination of ourself, our interaction in this world, or Father, uh, being creative or caring for your creation. We know this idea of who we are and what we do, the image of God and expanding your kingdom is foundational to who we are. Um, Father, I praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we also celebrate communion. Um, For those serving communion, if you would come up, um, we will celebrate that in a couple minutes. And as we celebrate communion, again, I'll return to one idea I had mentioned earlier in, uh, in Exodus, in the Passover, Exodus 12, where God tells the Israelites... Take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, take its blood, put it over your doorposts. That was the Passover that was celebrated by Jesus and his disciples on the night before he was crucified. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Christ, on that night, redefined what the Passover meant. He was our Passover lamb. His blood that was shed would cover over our sins. And so for the church, now for over 2,000 years, has met and celebrated communion. And we do so today, and it's an awesome privilege.
couple quick reminders. Scripture tells us to take some time, examine yourself, repent of anything that you need to repent of before you come and celebrate communion. So we'll take a quick minute here and um, in silence. But then secondly, uh, we practice an open communion, so anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ is invited to come and celebrate uh, this with us this morning. So if you're following after uh, Jesus Christ and by faith you have um, believed in the gospel that Christ died for your sins, that he created you initially for to be a true image bearer, that because of our sin we are broken and uh, separated from him, but that through Christ and his blood and his resurrection, he has given you new life and hope, and that's um, that has changed your heart, and you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You are invited um, to participate in communion. If you're not there yet, I would pray that you would talk with me after service or talk with one of our elders at, at, after service. We would love nothing more than to be able to talk with you further about that. So we'll take a, a real brief minute here. Um, just examine yourself before coming into the presence of God. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.